In Louisiana, low-income communities and communities of color disproportionately bear the harmful health effects that result from living near the state's countless oil refineries, petrochemical plants, and natural gas facilities. Many of the environmental toxins that flow from these industrial sites produce fetal impairments. At the same time, the Louisiana legislature recently passed a disability selective abortion ban, which would prohibit abortions that are sought because the child will be born with a disability. Read together, these two efforts, which are replicated in states across the U.S., raise important and complex questions at the intersection of reproductive and environmental justice. Welcome to the California Law Review Podcast. Our goal is to provide an accessible and thought-provoking overview of the scholarship we publish. Today we will be discussing the dysgenic state, environmental injustice, and disability selective abortion bans, a piece by Berkeley Law Professor Kiara Bridges, published in Issue 2 of Volume 110 in April of 2022. Professor Bridges, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today about your article. Oh, thanks for the invitation. It's a pleasure. So to begin with, can you summarize your main argument in this piece? Yeah, so the argument is just um, about being attentive to um, the combination of environmental injustices and um, these new kind of restrictions on abortion access, uh, disability selective abortion. Um, and the article puts those two phenomenon phenomena in conversation and notes that it is likely that it will result in a landscape in which people of color um, have more uh, impairments, health impairments, um, disabilities. Um, and I'm worried about the possible perception that it's just the way things are, that people of color um, have more health impairments, have more disabilities than their white counterparts. And before we get to these important inter interventions your article makes, I'm hoping you could provide us a bit of background. Um, so could you describe some of the ways in which environmental toxins cause fetal impairments? Yes, um, so it's kind of one of those things where we have observed it, but um, there's no um, you know, experiments that prove as much and as much as uh, you know, to, to do what is the you know, gold standard of scientific proof. To show causation, you know, to show that a particular chemical causes fetal impairment, um, you would need to expose a control group to no toxins and another group um, to toxins, and then see what happens um, with their with their the fetuses that they gestate. And of course, that's wildly unethical. Um, but there is good evidence um, that a range of of chemicals, a range of toxins, um, impair. Um, fetal health, um, and, you know, things ranging from the chemicals in air pollution, um, the chemicals produced as a result of fracking, um, lead, of course, um, mercury, of course, um, all of these chemicals. Um, there's good evidence out there that shows that they produce a range of, of fetal impairments, you know, ranging from um, neurological uh, um, injuries, uh, physical injuries, um, and, you know, heart defects, um, things of that nature. So um, there's, there's, uh, we should, we should feel safe <laughs> in knowing that um, exposing people with a capacity for pregnancy, as well as people without the capacity for pregnancy to these toxins um, is just bad for, for fetal health. And I, you know, I actually want to pause and just underscore that point that it's not just that being exposed to these toxins when someone is, is gestating a fetus, that's, 
that's when the harm happens. There's evidence that these, these toxins damage um, eggs as well as sperm um, before a fetus is even, you know, before conception even happens, before a fetus even exists. So being exposed to um, toxins at any point during the life cycle um, when one is uh, of reproductive age is just that, you know, bad for um, fetal health. Great. And uh, could you describe to us how these environmental injustices and their resultant reproductive harms fall disproportionately on people of color and poor people? Right, absolutely. So, you know, that's one of the interventions of the environmental justice movement, environmental justice as a framework. Um, environmental justice, you know, as a framework is, is a response to traditional um, environmentalism. Um, and as much as traditional environmentalism um, and the traditional environment, environmental protection movement tended to be concerned with um, wildlife and tended to be concerned with um, uh, flora, you know, um, protecting, you know, plants and water systems and so on. And of course, that's incredibly important. But what fell outside of their sort of ambit of concern was like people <laughs> and especially built environments. Um, and so environmental justice, the intervention of that movement was to say, well, you know, let's let's not only um, be concerned about wildlife and and um, um, unbuilt environments, but also the, the places where people live. So what do our communities look like? Do we have any green spaces in there? Um, do Are we exposed to, to pollution um, as a result of not just, you know, um, whether we live close to a highway or not, but also in the course of our jobs? Um, is, it, is, it in our, is it in our paint? Is it in our soil, um, in our communities? Um, and so environmental justice kind of centers that the people, right? Um, and also specifically people of color, because people of color um, tended not to be of concern to traditional um, environmental protection. Um, and um, one of the, the sort of primary concerns of environmental justice is, to, is, is an interrogation into how some communities just disproportionately bear the burdens um, of industrialization and industrial processes, um, while other communities disproportionately um, you know, enjoy the benefits of it. And it has been historically true um, that people of color disproportionately bear the burdens. And it's important for me to explain that this is true even when one controls for class. Um, a host of studies um, have shown, starting from the 1980s, have shown that um, even people of color with some degree of class privilege, um, their air quality, the communities that they live in have poor air quality than their communities, than the communities of their white counterparts. They have poor, um, you know, um, access to food, um, soil quality, and so on and so forth. So um, this is not just a, a problem of class. You know, we should very much be concerned about um, the violence of poverty. Um, but it's not just a function of class. This is a, this is a race problem. Um, this is something that is um, that people of color, even when they enjoy some degree of class privilege, can expect to live in unhealthier environments and unhealthier communities. And then as a final follow-up, could you describe just what the reproductive justice movement is? Yes, um, reproductive justice is a response in some ways to the reproductive rights movement. Um, reproductive rights movement, it's so funny because I just had a conversation about this um, or just the other day um, where I said that I write and teach um, reproductive rights 
And the person who I was talking to said, whoa, in the Supreme Court, they're going to hand down Dobbs this summer um, and the abortion right is going to be, you know, um, eliminated or eviscerated. And so that is just kind of a testament to what reproductive rights has come to mean in the popular mind. Reproductive rights has come to mean abortion rights. Um, And this is in part true because the mainstream reproductive rights organizations concerned themselves kind of exclusively with fighting for access to abortion and fighting for the protection of the abortion right. And so the reproductive justice framework is a response to that myopic kind of focus on abortion rights. Um, reproductive justice says, you know, when we when we broaden our focus beyond the concerns of, you know, affluent white people with a capacity for pregnancy, affluent white cis women um, who have tended to be concerned about abortion rights to the exclusion of everything else, because abortion um, restrictions were the reproductive injustice that they experienced because society was very interested in making sure that they reproduced, you know, often um, produced, you know, white babies for a white future. Um, When we broaden our focus beyond the reproductive oppression experienced by affluent white cis women, we saw that there were a range of things that were limiting people's capacities when it comes to their reproductive lives. And so, yes, like people need to have access to abortion, um, but we need more than rights because rights kind of in in our in our. you know, constitutional structure, um, rights tend to mean like uh, freedom from governmental intervention. Um, So when true access means that, you know, for those who are marginalized, for those who are poor, for those with disabilities, those who are young, those who are undocumented, we need some sort of help in accessing abortion. We need um, transportation, we need childcare, we need um, the money to actually pay for the procedure. And then even broader than that, um, we need access to contraception, right? To prevent um, pregnancy in the first instance, we need sex education um, so that we can control you know, so that we have knowledge about how to avoid pregnancy if that's what we want. Um, So reproductive justice says, okay, so the right not to become a parent is incredibly important, but then what about also the right to become a parent? Um, So we would be concerned about, you know, infertility um, and and especially, you know, state-sanctioned infertility. This is what I talk about in the dysgenic state, um, how the state is kind of um, not protecting its citizens um, from the toxins that that might result, um, you know, the effect of what of, of exposure would be to render somebody incapable of either becoming pregnant in the first instance or sustaining a pregnancy. Um, so, okay, so the right not to become pregnant is incre- incredibly important in the reproductive justice framework, the right to become pregnant. Okay, so infertility, we're concerned about that. Incarceration, we're concerned about that. Um, and then what about the right to parent the, the children that one has as well? Um, when we see, when we, when we broaden our focus to look at, you know, are people capable of parenting their children with dignity, we'll see a lot of systems that deny them that. Um, the family regulation system, also known as the child protection system, for example, you know, that system rips kids away from their parents every single day. Um, and the fault of their parent is not because the parent doesn't love them or a parent is, is abusive or whether the parent is poor or has a, um, you know, substance use disorder or has a mental illness. So they need, they need 
uh, support and care um, as opposed to coercion. So again, reproductive justice framework is much broader than just a narrow focus on the legal right to an abortion, which is what the reproductive rights uh, framework tends to be focused on. And so that's why this article, Dishinic State, is um, uh, inspired by or is operating within the reproductive justice framework because I'm looking at um, how environmental injustices kind of narrow our, our worlds um, when it comes to reproduction, how it denies us the ability to become pregnant in the first instance, um, and then also to raise you know, children in healthy environments. Thank you so much for that background. And you alluded to this a bit in your previous answer, but turning to, to kind of the central argument of your paper, you describe a situation where low-income communities and communities of color are disproportionately affected by environmental harms that impair fetal health. And then at the same time, states are seeking to prevent individuals from having abortions because the fetus has been diagnosed with one of these health impairments. So can you begin by describing to us what a reasons-based abortion ban is, and then specifically what a disability-selective abortion ban is? Yeah, sure. Um, so <laughs> this, you know, it's, it's sad that this this article might become anachronistic <laughs> um, fairly soon. Um, but ever since Roe v. Wade was passed and, you know, um, or came down, ever since the court decided Roe v. Wade in 1973, um, anti-abortion advocates have been looking to narrow the right, leading ultimately to its it's, you know, elimination. Um, and so we call this incrementalism, right? So they've been passing laws that incrementally um, chip away at the abortion, right? And the reason why I say that this article might become anachronistic, um, because, you know, in, um, we're recording right now, um, the Supreme Court is probably, as we speak, uh, writing the opinion in Dobbs, uh, versus Jackson Women's Health Organization, in which um, petitioners have asked the court to overturn Roe v. Wade altogether. Um, and so if Roe v. Wade falls, then anti-abortion advocates will no longer need to seek a, you know, Roe's um, evisceration incrementally. Rather, they have what they've been fighting for since 1973, which is um, the overturning of Roe altogether. Um, but Today, let's say March uh, 2022, um, it has been the the tactic, the strategy of anti-abortion folks to just incrementally just make abortion less accessible, incrementally um, make it harder for people to access abortion, so on and so forth. And so these reasons-based abortion bans are kind of, are definitely like the new. It's cutting a edge. <laughs> um, in a sense, let me drop an asterisk next to that. Um, it, this is a, it's like a cutting edge, it's kind of a new um, approach to narrowing the abortion right and making abortion um, less uh, accessible. And so reasons-based abortion bans attempt to prevent abortions that are pursued for certain reasons. Um, and so we have three iterations of them now, sex-based abortion um, bans, race-based abortion bans and disability-selective abortion bans. Um, sex-based or sex-selective abortion bans, um, those purport to respond to the fact that in some places, in some countries, there's a sun preference. Um, and so uh, some people 
are, uh, are would terminate a pregnancy when they find out that the fetus that they carry would be identified female at birth. Um, and so these laws, sex selective abortion bans, seek to prevent people um, from terminating pregnancies um, because the fetus would be identified female at birth. Um, race selective abortion bans, it's so hard for me to say that without rolling my eyes because <laughs> it just doesn't make sense. Um, but they purport to respond uh, to the phenomenon uh, um, that Black people with a capacity for pregnancy just have higher abortion rates um, than their white counterparts. Um, and that is true because of institutional racism. It's true because Black folks don't have uh, access to contraception. They go to schools where they're not, you know, given sex education. Um, they don't have just health care, period, <laughs> um, let alone, you know, reproductive health care. Um, they live in poverty, right? Disproportionate rates of poverty. And so the higher abortion rates, it's, it's simply a function of that marginalization. Um, and so race selective abortion bans purport to respond to this phenomenon by preventing people from terminating a pregnancy because the fetus is black. Um, it's just ridiculous. Um, if, if one is, so if one is interested in lowering, uh, Black people's abortion rates, one wouldn't do it coercively, one would do it by expanding opportunities um, and making it so that people are living humane um, in humane conditions. And then finally, um, disability selective abortion bans purport to um, prevent abortions when people are terminating the pregnancy because the fetus has a disability of some sort, um, has an impairment. Um, and I, you know, in the article, I say like that these are kind of different um, from race selective abortions um, and sex selective abortions insofar as sex selective abortions do happen, right? Whether it's a problem um, or whether it's even um, occurs with some any degree of frequency in the U.S. And that's a different question, but it certainly happens. Race selective abortion bans are of figment of the conservative imagination, or, or rather, let me just say, race-selective abortions are a figment of the conservative um, imagination. But disability-selective abortion, um, abortions actually happen. Um, there's good evidence um, that people do terminate pregnancies when they discover that the fetus has an impairment, um, that the fetus uh, will have Down syndrome, that the fetus um, will have, you know, spina bifida, um, you know, a range of, of conditions. And so um, these bans purport to respond to that, that truth by preventing people from terminating their pregnancy for those reasons. I guess regarding these disability selective abortion bans, it seems that at least at first glance, and your piece notes this, one might argue that these bans are anti-eugenic because they prevent abortions of children who may have been targeted by the eugenics movement. Um, but your article, of course, argues that this perspective constitutes a gross misreading of history. And in fact, in the context of the environmental injustices that we talked about earlier, these bans actually function to produce the goals of the eugenics movement. So could you walk us through how you reach this conclusion and uh, I guess describe for us what the dysgenic state is? Yeah, sure. So in the litigation surrounding disability selective abortion and disability selective abortion bans. Um, and not just in the litigation surrounding it, but just in conversation, you know, around it. Um, conservatives have described 
disability selective abortions as eugenic and disability selective abortion bans as anti-eugenic. So we're preventing, you know, eugenics from happening. And then, you know, this position got its most, I wouldn't say articulate, but <laughs> extensive <laughs> um, uh, platform in uh, Justice Thomas's concurrence in Fox versus Planned Parenthood, um, where he just he says eugenic a million times and he describes uh, seeking to terminate a pregnancy because the fetus um, has an impairment as eugenic. And so therefore these abortion bans would be anti-eugenic. So to describe uh, these abortions as eugenic is to misunderstand history. Um, <laughs> it's, it, it is to kind of just ignore what the eugenics movement was actually about. Um, but I think probably the most important point to note is that eugenics was a state-sponsored program. Um, and it was the state making decisions about who should and should not reproduce. And so one of the most famous, I guess the most famous cases about eugenics was Buck versus Bell, in which Carrie Buck um, was forced to endure a non-consensual sterilization because she was identified as a quote unquote imbecile. And so it wasn't Carrie Buck, like, you know, I don't, if I have a child, my child might have a disability. Rather, it was the state that decided that Carrie Buck was not going to be an adequate parent. It was not an adequate person um, who should reproduce. And so when families, when individuals are making decisions about whether or not to carry to term a pregnancy, um, that in which the fetus has a disability, the state is not involved at all. These are, one would, one would uh, um, I think it's accurate to say, like these are difficult decisions, right? That people, that people wrestle with. And if they ultimately decide that they are incapable um, of parenting a child with a disability, um, that is a that is an individual kind of assessment. It has nothing to do with state coercion. Um, I want to just elaborate a bit on that point, which is there is an incredible cruelty <laughs> involved with the state saying you must bear a child with a disability um, when we live in a neoliberal <laughs> present where the state is abdicating responsibility for the care of its citizens. Um, we have a, a, just a, a terrible uh, um, arrangement when it comes to supporting families. We don't support families um, with you know, children without disabilities, and we certainly don't adequately support families when children have disabilities and we don't support people with disabilities. Um, you know, we have a, a number of decisions that have rolled back the protections of the Americans with Disability Act. Um, the, you know, right is adamant about um, eliminating healthcare, um, the healthcare that people with disabilities need in order to, you know, be independent and go out into society and, you know, be, you know, contribute to society in the way that, you know, most the right values. And so um, there's an incredible irony, you know, and a cruelty involved in 
a state that would compel people to bear children with disabilities and then not help them care for the children with disabilities. Um, so that's what we're facing when we're talking about these disability selective abortion bans. Um, you asked me how uh, that arrives at the dysgenic state. <laughs> um, and I, you know, I, the analysis that I conduct in the article is to say, you know, first we have a state that produces impairment <laughs> um, in, in its citizenry. Um, and not just in its citizenry at large, but disproportionately its citizenry of, of color. Um, and the state produces that disability by not regulating industry, um, by not um, prohibiting the production of these chemicals or the use of these chemicals in industrial processes. Um, so first, the state refuses to protect its citizens from toxins. Um, and insofar as it refuses to protect the citizens from toxins, it produces the impairments um, that these that we know these toxins produce. And then the state turns around and says, and then you must bear the child um, that has been um, injured um, by these toxins. And I call that the dysgenic state. <laughs> it's a state that is, at, you know, like, actively producing an impaired citizenry and again an impaired citizenry of color um, and this is diametrically opposite um, to the eugenic state which purported to be interested um, in in producing um, citizenry that was uh, that was free of of impairment yeah as a final final point your paper uh, describes how the dysgenic state functions to reaffirm the concept of biological race. Could you tell us a bit about that argument? Right. So um, one of the moves that I make up in the paper um, is to say, okay, so the eugenic state was interested in producing like, you know, this citizenry that had awesome genes. Um, and by awesome genes, they're just talking about wealthy white people um, and in the minority, with, sorry, wealthy white people without disabilities. Um, and in the, in, you know, in the minority would be people of color, poor people, um, people with disabilities. Okay, you know, there's a very genetic determination, determinism in this, right? As if, you know, genetics determines poverty. <laughs> as if genetics, you know, as, you know, as a matter of course, determines disability. Um, and so on and so forth. Um, so there's a, gen, you know, genetic determinism, but that was, that was just a eugenic, you know, belief. Um, but in my paper, I, I try to underscore that that's, that's kind of like the state of affairs that the dysgenic state would produce, right? The state that doesn't protect its citizenry from toxins, but then forces the citizenry to bear, you know, fetuses and children that have been harmed by those toxins. Um, white people disproportionately live in the pristine environments, right? White people disproportionately live in those areas where air quality is awesome, water quality is great, soil quality is dope, like, <laughs> um, and so they're not being exposed, you know, this is the environmental justice framework and intervention, they're just not being exposed to these, these um, toxins that harm fetuses as frequently um, as their counterparts of color. 
And so it means that their fetuses are not going to be impaired um, by these toxins as frequently as the fetuses of people of color. And then we also have to sort of layer in um, the, the reproductive justice intervention, which is to say, even if we have an abortion right, or even if we have a disability selective abortion ban on the books, um, some people are going to be able to, you know, get around that ban and other people will not. And the people who are able to get around the ban, the people who will be able to travel um, to places where there is no disability selective abortion ban, the people um, who will be able to pay for the abortion, uh, the people who will be able to know an obstetrician um, who would, you know, hook them up, you know, perform the termination um, despite the prescription and the law, those people are going to be privileged. Those people are disproportionately white. So white people not only will avoid the toxins that impair fetal health in the first instance, they'll be able to get around the disability selective abortion ban. On the other hand, people of color are disproportionately exposed to these toxins. We've already talked about that, but people of color disproportionately find these abortion restrictions insurpassable, right? Um, so they will be the ones who are actually prevented from terminating pregnancies because they, um, um, you know, or might be doing it because of a diagnosis um, of an impairment in a fetus. Um, so the result, I argue in my paper, is that white people are going to be able to give birth to fetuses that have not been impaired by environmental toxins. Um, meanwhile, people of color will <laughs> be coerced to give birth to these fetuses that have been harmed by toxins. Um, and they're more likely to have fetuses that have been harmed by toxins. And so the state of affairs that I, that I, that I kind of paint in the, in the picture is one where people of color will disproportionately have impairments. You know, we disproportionately um, will have spina bifida. Uh, we disproportionately will have heart defects. We disproportionately will have, you know, and so on and so forth. I'm worried <laughs> about how that will speak to these um, persist the, the persistent myth of biological race, um, and the myth of biological race says <sighs> white, black, Asian, native, like those are just true divisions of humanity because Asian folks have Asian genes, white folks have white genes, black folks have black genes, native people have native genes, um, and. Not only is it biological race satisfied to say, you know, that when we talk about a race, we're talking about a genetically homogenous grouping of individuals, biological race tends to say, well, then there's also different characteristics associated, you know, with those genes. So the Asian gene tends to produce studiousness. Um, and the native gene tends to produce, you know, a communing with nature. White gene is just awesome all around. Um, and black genes, well, there's criminality, there's laziness, there's sexual, you know, deviance, um, and there's disability. <laughs> and so I'm very, very worried about how the dysgenic state will produce a state of affairs in which people of color, black people, disproportionately, ha you know, have impairments. Um, and how that will speak to the truth of this notion um, that there's something in black genes that just make us have spina bifida and, you know, heart defects and, and so on. So that is the punchline of the article, I suppose. Well, Professor Bridges, thank you so much for, for joining us and discussing these really important arguments in your article.
Thank you. And, you know, actually, I want to just use this um, as an opportunity to say I try really, really hard um, in the paper um, not to be ableist. Um, I think that um, so I I I think it's important for me to note that I am not arguing in the paper that disability is bad. Um, I think disability is um, just, you know, it's just a part of the diversity of human forms. Um, I also think there's a, tr a very true distinction between impairment and disability in the sense that impairment is, is you know, is a characteristic of a body. Um, and when that characteristic in interacts with a hostile environment, that's how people become disabled. Um, so I take the, the um, I take the lessons of critical disability studies to heart in this paper. At the same time, I do think that there is something incredibly cruel about a state um, that will produce impairments um, in the populations um, while also doing nothing to render the environments in which those impairments will interact um, to be less hostile so that people are not disabled by it. Um, so again, I hope that I'm successful in the article. I am open to critique around whether I actually succeed in, in making this critique about disability selective abortion bans that is not in fact ableist. Um, but that was one of the, the kind of tensions um, that I had to occupy when I was writing the paper. Yeah, thank you for that important comment. Well, we hope you've enjoyed this episode of the California Law Review podcast. If you would like to read Professor Bridges' article, you can find it in Volume 110, Issue 2 of the California Law Review at californialawreview.org. For updates on new episodes and articles, please follow us on Twitter. You can find a list of the editors who worked on this volume of the podcast in the show notes. We'll see you in the next episode.